Hi, Katie here. If you listen to the podcast a lot and you haven't yet donated, please consider supporting this podcast. Podcasting is great. It allows long-form interviews to be long-form. It allows people to listen without having to listen to advertising. But we do need your support. Support for the art, for conversation, for information, for the creation of this podcast, and for podcasts yet to come. Podcasting is a wonderful thing. It puts radio in the hands of the creator. But it does need your support. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Whatever you can give is so welcome, and we're so thankful for it, you can't even believe. A little bit goes a long way, particularly when you're supporting art that's just coming from the ground up. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. It's nice to go on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but with me instead, recording at Town Hall in Seattle, is writer Tom Vanderbilt. Tom is contributing editor of Wired in the UK, Outside and Art Forum. He's the author of Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us, and Survival City, Adventures Among the Ruins of Atomic America. His latest book, and why we're talking today, is called You May Also Like, Taste in an Endless Age of Choice. So I ask you, as you listen, have you ever asked yourself why you like the things that you like or dislike the things that you hate? Maybe you've had an experience buying something that you loved while you were traveling, and then when you get home, you find out, why did I buy this? So we're going to look into why is that? Where are your preferences coming from? And I have so many questions. I've already told Tom there's no way we're going to get through them all. But thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Can I start out by asking you, what are some of the things that you really like? You personally? Oh, geez. Uh, I mean, it's a huge list. I, mean, I feel like I'm on Desert Island Discs and I haven't come up with my 10 top songs of all time. But, um, oh, I don't know. It, it sounds like a New York Times um, personal ad or something. I like travel, long walks on the beach. Um, dog. No, I mean, it is a funny thing. You know, you get faced with all these almost binary choices. Are you a dog or a cat person? Actually, I'm sort of both. It it's, depends on the dog, depends on the cat, depends on uh, the time. But I, I'm pretty omnivorous, especially after writing this book. I really try not to reject things out of hand, things I, I once might have rejected, because I think there's always a way into liking something. N- not that everything is great, that there aren't bad things. That's too big of a question. I'm yeah, sorry. That is a big question. I don't know if you found this in your research or not, but did you find that people take pride in what they prefer? Yes, they do. I mean, the, uh, the funny thing, it seems that likes are the things we want to broadcast. These are the things that we tell our we advertise ourselves to the world on social media or other forms. I mean, dislikes, we almost feel them more powerfully, but they're a little bit more private. This could be for a variety of reasons. You might have a dislike of something that everyone else likes, so you're hesitant to come out with that. But, you know, you don't see people, I use the example of like Johnny Rotten wore a t-shirt and he wrote, I hate Pink Floyd in, in black marker. You don't see a lot of I hate t-shirts walking around. We like to keep our dislikes to ourselves or maybe to a close circle of friends. And you almost have to find someone you're sure doesn't like something. It can be a little bit of a, like a card game, who's going to show their cards. That's so true. We have to make sure that we're not stepping on anybody's toes by insulting what they like, essentially, right? Exactly. 
And there's so many ways you can go wrong with uh, taste. I use that phrase very broadly. I was just reading uh, in today in the Los Angeles Times, there was a story about a guy who's a restaurant reviewer. He went to a Somali restaurant and he, he got this dish served to him and there was sort of a banana on the side. It just looked weird to him. He didn't know what, why it was there, what it was doing. And, and he sort of made some comment about it. He joked that it was you know, like an appetizer and he was trying to be funny and Turns out that you know you're supposed to cut up a banana and, and mix it with the rice, and it's this ingrained part of Somali cuisine. But the first time he had been to one of these restaurants, he didn't know the drill, and he was so he was endlessly pilloried on social media in a sort of fun way, but not always so fun. So, just for a baseline, you start out the book by taking us through the five principles in the science of preferences. Remember these off the top of your head? I do. I mean, they're, they're just, I don't know that there's so much principles or things I sort of came up with. I mean, they're not, this isn't like the five laws of, of something, but um, I mean, one is, is categorical. This applies in all sorts of ways. We might like a certain food at dinner, but not at breakfast. I mean, how you sort of you know, shape something. We might like a certain color for clothing, but not for automobile. Our likes are usually not universal, not, um, I don't know what the right word is, but we, they're often very kind of dependent upon the category. Contextual, contextuality would be another thing. Um, thinking of, of, you're mentioning going abroad and picking up something. You find this great hat, everyone's wearing it. You think it's great, you bring it back. You're sort of like, what What just happened on the plane ride home? I became the person I normally am. I'm not that person in the exotic place. We take a lot of cues from what's around us, social learning, so context. And there's a lot of ways context apply. There's been studies about if you're eating at an Italian restaurant and you hear Italian-themed music, it can increase your liking. So having just having those contextual cues can do that. Third would be uh, I mean, just constructed. I think sometimes when we're asked a question, do you like the blue or red cover of this book? You might not really have an answer, but the mere proposing of that question prompts you to come up with something and, and you almost create the rationale afterwards. Fourth would be... Um, <laughs> Comparative. Yeah, I mean, I just think it goes back to social learning. We're always making decisions about something with other people in mind, either either pro or con. We want to do something because we saw someone doing it. We want to not do something because we saw too many people doing it, for example. The last one would be congenital. And that, I mean, that was just talking about how parents and children rarely share tastes, at least for very long. There's not kind of some genetic predisposition that's passed along that would explain your liking for much of anything. So those were five broad things I kind of came across, and they all had the letter C. Just based on all of those examples that our tastes are really adaptive, that we are influenced by so many outside things. So does that mean that we even have a clue what our real true tastes are? You know, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it kind of gets to this larger question of what is our actual self. And I mean, I think we have maybe a stronger sense of that, but taste can be a, a much more fleeting. And it's ironic that we do get so defensive about them when they can shift so much and we often do forget how much they will shift. I mean one of my favorite experiments sort of they ask people to how much would you pay to see your favorite band from 10 years ago play now versus how much would you pay to see your favorite band now play in 10 years and people always favor the current band in 10 years even though they've missed the very lesson there which is they no longer care as much about the band they used to like. Their tastes change from past to present they don't somehow think they're going to change as much from present to future. Yeah, it's sort of like looking back and seeing what you were wearing as a kid. And you think to yourself, how could I possibly be wearing that? You can't even relate to your old fashion sense, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, in this talk tonight, I have a, a just a photo of myself in college wearing acid wash jeans. And it's you know, I look at it and I just laugh. And, and at the time, of course, I was not laughing. I thought it was at the absolute height of 
style and no one steered me away from that. I mean, maybe, maybe I was, maybe I was a dork then and I'm a dork now. I don't know. No, but a lot of people were wearing these things and we now look back in almost horror. I think they've been, haven't they kind of come back a little bit in sort of an ironic way, but, but no, I mean, the point is, that, yeah, it's, uh, we don't look at each other right now and think that we are currently experiencing some form of questionable taste that society 10 years from now will, will judge us harshly for. We think we're just living who we are and this is how we're going to be and this is, nothing's going to change. Yeah, it does seem like fashion, you talk about this a little bit in the book, but fashion seems to be one of those things that changes pretty quickly and that we're making a statement, but we're also willing to follow what other people are doing a little bit more. Can you explain that? I mean, fashion is, almost by definition, is meant to change. And I mentioned in the book, I talked to the head of Saks. He gives some statistic. I think it's 60% of what they stock will sell in the first X number of weeks, first four weeks. People come in and they want to see what's new. They don't want to know what was happening last year. And fashion, because it's cheaper than other forms of consumption, obviously like cars or houses or heavy pieces of furniture, you can work with that, especially nowadays. You can go to H&M and buy a fairly decent looking shirt for $15 if it... If it turns out to not be the right bet on whatever you know style was happening or you feel awkward about it, I mean, you just sort of chuck it. I mean, that's sort of what's happened. There was a second part to that question lurking there. I think. Why would fashion be a thing if we're all trying to be unique individuals? Why would that be something that we're willing to copy each other on? Yeah, I think there's a thing people have identified, some psychologists called conformist distinction. And, and even as we're trying to be essentially like each other, which you could argue goes back to this evolutionary past of small groups and needing to conform to basically survive. There's this second part that we, within that group or within larger groups, we may still want to not be utterly conformist. We may want to have just the smallest amount of distinction. And it, it varies per person. There's a range here. The, you know, your avant-garde or your hipsters will want to do this more. But um, the one thing that's interesting is within subcultures, you can find the most hardcore subculture and they will be intent on differentiating themselves as much as they can from the mainstream but then within that very group as this research has found they become incredibly conforming within that small group you can think of hardcore punk or other sorts of you know where you see the very same clothes replicated and it's almost as if they're dressing to a uniform which in some sense they are well, maybe we should back up because I've gotten a little bit into the complex of how other people influence us and what we like but can you explain, maybe if we go to one of your initial colors, is why is that, why do people like the color blue? Why does it appeal to people the most? As a way of sort of getting at how do we even form likes initially? Like ones that are as basic as, this is my favorite color. Yeah, and this was a, a question that my daughter asked me, and I felt like I was just giving a, a quick response that, that, that a harried parent gives to their kid when they're asked 20 questions in a row like this about, you know, about favorites. I, did I have a favorite color? She asked me, what, what's your favorite color? Did I have a favorite color? I said blue, and I felt like, boy, is that sort of obvious? And then I thought, well, why would that be obvious? And is blue actually my favorite? If so, where did that come from? Is it because I simply see other people also enjoying blue? And that kind of doesn't take the story long enough either. Why are they enjoying blue? So um, I went to Stephen Palmer at UC Berkeley. He's a psychologist, runs the Palmer Lab, and he has a great theory that I like because it handles a lot of variations here, and it's called ecological valence. So it's a complicated way of saying, I mean, you were mentioning tastes are adaptive and that we basically, we grow to like the color of the things we like most in the natural world. Say, say natural world, not iPods, consumer goods, but, but things in the natural world that we would have been exposed to and formed positive associations with. So blue 
Palmer, you know, generated this list of blue things in the world, and they're all they're all pretty great. Blue sky, water, blueberries. There, there aren't as you know, there aren't a ton of negative things. But you can you can find them. So, so blue turns out to be the most preferred. And by saying most preferred, I'm not saying 90 percent, but it, it does have there is a continuum here. Is it then a, an inherited thing that we're born liking blue? That's complicated by the fact that he has done research on infants, and they tend to stare longer at color cards, which are from the yellow-brown spectrum. And they use staring for infants as a proxy for liking. You can't actually ask them. We think they look at what they're fascinated and like. So then, you know, what, what happens? Number one, why do infants like yellow-brown? And then why do they shift away? Because the longer they're on the planet, they're beginning to adjust to these things. I also like about Palmer's theory is it can... The learning aspect sort of helps it to apply to short, more shorter-term color preferences, that if you go to school at a certain college that has a certain color scheme, you will, the theory goes, kind of pick up a subconscious liking for that color. I went to the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It's kind of a red. I still like blue, but, you know, so while I was there, I probably, if you had quizzed me, but you could do this, you can, and you can prime people the other direction, show them negative images of a color associated with a color, like red blood, with a wound, for example, and the liking for red will go down. So it's kind of this ever-fluctuating, almost like a mirror you're holding up to the world of the things that really you feel great about, and that seems to inform color preference. Now here in the city of Seattle, where the, the skies are not often blue, I, I often wonder if there is, if you, people might be drawn to more sort of silvery grays or something. I'm thinking of like the Seattle Seahawks or something, but um, anyway, just, just... But the Seahawks is predominantly blue. Yeah, well, you're surrounded by water too, right? So, um, so you give that too. Yeah, yeah. And and did they find out why infants are drawn to brown and yellow? I mean, a theory, anyway. I mean, Palmer. This is just Palmer saying that perhaps mother's nipples in that color range. So infants being drawn to a primary nutrition source. I mean, there's a there's a strong learning aspect to that, and uh, so, yeah. and then they would, as they moved away from that, perhaps the yellow brown, and, and they also begin to pick up some of the disgust things that might be associated with that. I mean, infants obviously don't care about feces if you've ever kind of tried to change. I mean, you know, they, they, they love th that stuff. So they don't pick up that negative aspect of that till a few couple years in. So then that might also influence that changing color. There was a story I told once on this podcast that when I was a kid, my, one of my favorite colors was magenta or hot pink. As I became an adult, it turned into blue and black. And then when I went abroad it, and started spending a lot of time working on myself artistically, all of a sudden it turned back into magenta. And then when I got back here, now it was turning back into blue. And do you have any theory on why that would be? It's not always the natural world, right? I, t I tell the story in the book about living in Spain as an expat, and this is 1991, circa. I saw a lot of Spanish men wearing red pants. And where I came from then, you know, that was a pretty bold choice. It's not as bold now, although, you know, maybe it is. But so I, I bought a pair and began wearing them there and fancied myself like a proper, you know, Madrileno gentleman. Then went back home and the pants never left the closet. They were just too fashion forward for me as a not the most adventurous person in that regard. I think the Onion even had a had sort of a headline that kind of joked about this, like man in man wearing pink glasses, maybe Dutch or something, or maybe foreign. I, there, there was some sort of joke about this that that so European taste you might pick up some other local inflection that would then go back. Yeah, and then when you get home, you realize I can't pull this off here. People know me here. Uh, so what is unmotivated preferences? I mean, that's just a little thing that, that some psychologists talk about when, I mean, sometimes it gets back to that thing when you're asked to make a choice, I think. Of, and the example I use is the eternal 
toilet roll debate over under. I mean, it's, it's this trivial thing that people got worked up about in the Ann Landers column many years ago. But is there really a basis for that preference? Is it, if it's aesthetic, what is the aesthetic principle? Is it symmetry? I, I don't know. Is it functional? I mean, they both work over under. So I, lots of things like this, I feel like oh, you know, just walking through a grocery store, there are some categories I really don't care that much about the thing I'm buying. So if I bought, I don't know, bottled water, which I really don't buy, but where would I even begin to make a choice on that? It probably boils down to some weird thing about the packaging. In that case, I would think that's pretty unmotivated. I think one of the interesting things I started to notice after reading your book and during it, actually, is that how much of what we do in a day is just guided by what we like or trying to seek out what we might like as far as what we're buying, what we're eating, everything. I mean, is that a huge human motivation is preferences? Yeah, but and then, but also habit, too. So a lot of those, I'm not even sure we're making strong preferential judgments in a lot of those cases. We might just be relying on habitual behavior that we, and we may even confuse that with something that is a genuine preference. I mean, I guess it's a fine line to draw there. But I, and it's become even more so, apart from just being out in the world and making food decisions, which uh, Brian Wansig at Cornell says we make 200 of those a day, you can go onto a site, internet site, where we're exposed to that much more choice, Netflix, Spotify, what do I listen to next, what do I watch next? You start to think about that, then you're exposed to other weird little streams of other people's opinion that you find your own likes tested by other people. So yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, and this is in some ways why I wrote the book, I just found myself thinking about these things on a daily basis and just being asked to express my opinion and often not having an opinion or not having time to have an opinion and wondering how much of this was just pure habitual behavior, which I would guess a lot of it is, which, which gets into something that I talk about a lot, which do we know what we like or do we like what we know? And I think familiarity is a huge thing just for sheer efficiency. With music, for example, when I was young and I had a lot of surplus time, I could go out and try to find the most adventurous musical acts that no one else had heard of. Now my time is pretty limited, so I can try to find some contemporary version of that, or I can just sort of rest on my musical laurels and go back to things I was listening to back then that somewhat approximate things now. This sounds incredibly lazy and, you know, kind of like a Philistine move, but it's just, you know, sort of being efficient and, you know, what do you have time for in the day? Not all of us have time to, you know, track down obscure music. That would have to be a passion, a passion of yours. And even when it's a passion, there, there are still limits, yeah. I mean, right. and, <laughs> and this is not to say my musical tastes have not evolved at all. I mean, there are new things I'm finding that just might be in different categories than, say, the things I was listening to a while ago. So, in any case. And, well, going back to the social media question, are those new things, even if they're trickling in slower, somehow guided by these computer algorithms or what other people are posting about on Facebook and liking? I think a lot of it still works in some of the old-fashioned ways. I mean, as far, just to think of, of exposure and beginning to like what you're exposed to. I do a lot of writing. I wrote a lot of this book in a cafe in Brooklyn, and the people there are mostly younger than I am, and the music they're playing is music probably, you know, in kind of a demographic way is listened to by younger audience than myself but you know just being in there and overhearing this stuff again and again and you start to at first you're like what is this and then it just begins to sort of sink in you're like oh there's that song i like that hook and soon you're you're pulling out your iphone and shazamming it and finding it's oh it's you know something that you think is not somehow appropriate for you or you know but but i think you're first asking though about algorithms i mean so yeah i, I do find myself then going on to a site like Netflix, and that's a whole different experience because you don't have a way to just absorb films secondhand. You have to sort of seek them out. And 
with Netflix streaming, I find myself, it's just a weird personal thing. I, I sometimes find myself choosing a lower quality film that I think I would actually watch only because they've put it in front of me and they've made it easy for me to find. And I mean, that's just something like getting into efficiency and because you watched this. So, oh, I liked that. So it's, it's sort of familiar and um, maybe it's good or I'll just watch this film again for the third time because it's there and it's easy. It is a double-edged sword I and mean, you can have, you still need to put in a certain effort to find the new things and to broaden yourself. The stuff can just be sort of spoon-fed to you in a very easy way. And just to conclude, this is one problem that these engineers deal with is how do you strike this balance between discovery, finding the new stuff and presenting people stuff based simply on their previous choices and leading them down this path of what they call overfitting, like presenting you you're a Beatles fan, you start a Beatles station on Pandora, you know, okay, we'll play you a Beatles song, then we'll play you a George Harrison solo song, then we'll go back to the Beatles, and maybe that's what you want, maybe you want something else. So it's a very challenging thing. Yeah, hard for them to figure out how to actually target what we want, because there are going to be those cases where you watch something online and you hated it, and it just assumes that you watched that movie, and now just because you watched it, here's some other things. Yeah, and sometimes you don't want those things lingering around for very long, and you can strike them from your. You, you can you know toggle your preferences and things like that. And, and I mean, Last FM used to have a uh, list they would publish of the most quickly deleted songs, things that were sort of downloaded to a person's playlist, and then quickly it was sort of the guilty pleasure playlist. And, and we all have those. Let's talk about guilty pleasures for a second. How does that fit into what we like? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Guilty pleasures. I mean, on the one hand. It, they are genuine likes. It's an open question philosophically as to, you know, is the pleasure partially stemming from the guilt? Would there, would there be as much pleasure if we didn't have the guilt? Are we actually feeling any guilt? The other question is, you know, why would you be feeling guilt? Who's making you feel that guilt? And that's where guilty pleasures gets a little bit more of the social aspect of taste, people trying to prescribe behavior about what's acceptable to like. And one of my favorite experiments is to go to which I did is a site like Shutterstock, the photo stock agency. It's just kind of an interesting way to look at how culture is depicted. And you type in the phrase guilty pleasure, and it's just a page of, um, the first page is filled with women, I mean, literally like holding chocolate and eating and eating dessert and smiling. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know, I just, that's kind of a, a complex and disturbing message there. But someone pointed out to me it was similar in a way, but different to the women laughing alone with salad meme that a website brought up on these on these Shutterstock and other photo sites a very common advertising image that is another form of less guilty pleasure presumably I still think I have guilty pleasures and I actually enjoy that slightly illicit feel of watching something I feel is kind of not the best thing in the world it's almost like a temporary vacation from your own carefully cultivated taste, if that doesn't sound too pretentious, which I'm sure it does. <laughs> I mean, it's almost admitting that you do something while saying, I know I shouldn't be doing it. It's sort of like watching things that you would, for whatever reason, because of your taste, consider garbage television or something like that. Yeah, and this is where categorization can really help. I can say that I genuinely love, I don't know, let's say McDonald's, Big Mac and fries without necessarily also saying it's the best thing in the world or that I think it's even on a par with anything else. But by categorizing it in a certain way, you can appreciate, you can increase your liking for that thing and also sort of protect your liking for other things that may be above that. And I think we do this all the time instinctively with, it gets in the contextual idea again, you know, is this a great 
hot dog I'm eating. Well, no, but it is pretty good for an airport hot dog. You know, so we, we always make the adjustment and, and you don't want to go through life with these sort of elevated expectations. This is my feeling. I've, I've come to think that overall low expectations are a better life strategy. And this, maybe this is from living in New York too long. We're kind of out of a Woody Allen film or something, but, um, there's less room to be disappointed and there's more room for pleasant surprise. So let's talk about food a little bit more because that's where a lot of people have pretty strong likes and dislikes. One of the things I thought was so interesting was when you were talking about what we order on a menu and how what we order can change how it implants in our memory. So if we go to a restaurant we always go to and we order the same thing we always order, it's going to store itself in our brain differently than if we go there and we try something we've never tried before. Yeah, this was something that uh, Paul Rosen, who's a food, uh, he's a psychologist, but he researches food and likes and aversions, and he brought this up to me that if you want to create a new memory, you should order something you've never had before. And this is, gets into a point about memory and, and pleasure and liking is that a, a good deal of it is based on anticipation and memory, probably more so than the actual experience in the moment. We spend the whole day thinking about this great meal we're going to have later, then we might think about it the next day. The actual consumption was probably, you know, 10 minutes or something. And then because a lot of it takes place in those realms, there's chance for sort of biases to creep in. One way we all experience this, I think, is the classic trope of people feeling that the music of their youth was better. And this is sort of a universal thing. People say, well, baby boomers always said that about Woodstock, but every generation sort of says this and feels something like this. And I think what's happening is this selective bias that your memory is, is employing on you that you're really only sort of remembering the songs that, that you liked. You're, you're kind of forgetting about all the lesser stuff that has sort of dropped out of your memory. So you're creating this rosier picture. Someone compared it to sort of a jute, your memory is like a jukebox playing only the, your, your favorite hits, like you've queued up your favorite hits at the, at the bar or something. Um, that's what you're remembering from your past. But there were probably a lot of bad experiences as well that you've written out. So if you get to something like that where, circling back to food, you get to something where you dislike a certain food and you've decided that. How do those dislikes get formed, I guess? How does a dislike become a like at some point? That's a great question. I mean, because the mere exposure theory states in psychology that just being exposed to something multiple times will will increase your liking. There's a complication of that, though, which states that if you start with a pre-existing dislike that mere exposure to that same thing can only sharpen your dislike so the question of where does i mean in food it's a funny question really the only strong dislikes we should have biologically are things to which we've had a a severe let's just say nauseous reaction to actually expunge the food from our our body and that seems to have a particularly powerful implant upon our memory all sorts of other things, though, really don't. I mean, if you're allergic to something, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't like it. Um, so the question of how how do you change that is, is very complicated. I mean, there's classic things that pretty much no one starts out liking, like whiskey or, or very strong taste. And I think those come with this nice post-benefit of alcohol or caffeine with coffee. So it becomes a conditioned sort of liking process. We begin to like it. It's an acquired taste, but what's interesting about that philosophically is you're not really liking the taste of the thing when you first had it. You've transformed that thing in your brain. Not only have you associated the positive benefits of caffeine or alcohol with that drink, the drink actually tastes different, I mean, but it is the same drink. You're the one who've, who's changed, and I think that's the funny way that the things we like can actually change who we are as, as people over time. 
and it's kind of this dynamic two-way process that I find interesting. Well, that gives me hope. My sister listens to this podcast and she doesn't eat a wide variety of foods. She always says that, and this is something I was thinking about when reading this chapter is there are people who are foodies that you say, oh, well, I don't like avocados. They're like, well, try one, just try one. Mm. Just try one, you'll like it, I swear. And she can't stand that because she doesn't want to try one, which is part of her personality. But what is that about? Why do we try to force our likes onto somebody else? Or why we argue about what we like with each other? Yeah, I think there's a, a phenomenon in psychology which you know we, we think that our own views are more widely shared than they often are. And I think that's often with taste. If, if you're experiencing pleasure, it might be hard to really understand from something like a something's on, on your tongue and giving you pleasure. How could that not? I'm human, you're human. How could you not have that same positive experience? And it, it is a funny thing. I talked to some beer judges in this regard because this is something I'm always with my dad for example he's this you know lifelong kind of drinker of kind of traditional American mass market beers which were existed before the craft revolution and I was trying to push these craft beers on him and and these beer judges were telling me well the exact wrong thing to do would would be to just sort of present him with super hoppy bomb IPA and, and say and slam it down and say this is going to change your life you need to drink this right now I mean number one people get a little bit defensive I mean number two it's going to be such a leap from what his whole categorization mental categorization of what beer is you sort of need these training wheels not to sound patronizing but we, we need some bridge there and that's why you often find this phrase a starter IPA or something in Sierra Nevada which was a pretty radical beer back in the day but now is perceived as a little bit more mild, so you could start with something like that and work your way up the chain of complexity. You see this all the time in all kinds of other things, entryways into, into music or art. You, know, you might start with something a little more mild before getting to the more complex stuff. But and at the end of the day, to go back to your question, yeah, there is this almost hopeful quest there that we think that we're going to convert someone. And I was doing it in college with mixtapes, like this mixtape is going to change your life. And then my friend told me, well, I, I didn't really like song number three. That, that really took that personally. Yeah. Like I personally put song number three at the song number three mark. Right. <laughs> that, that was important. Like, yeah. How did that not change your life? Do, do we have a tendency to align ourselves with people who are similar in our likes and dislikes? Absolutely. I mean, this, yeah, this is uh Social homophily is the kind of the, the nice scientific term for it. You know, birds of a feather flock together. This, I'm trying to think of, of a good example here. I mean, one thing is that, for example, Facebook, there was some research done when people were given anonymously uh, generated records, but they were looking at people's likes they expressed. And just through those likes, they could predict with pretty strong certainty a number of factors about that person, gender, race, educational backgrounds. This is changing, especially with popular culture consumption, and this has been talked about for, for over a decade now, but we are becoming more sort of omnivorous is the word. We're free-ranging across more genres. People used to restrict themselves more, where if you were sort of a highbrow, um, only listen to opera, now you might talk about how I like opera, but I also dabble in these other forms. That is changing a bit, but there's still a strongly correlative thing with taste, and this was really brought home to me in an experiment I did at this startup that no longer exists called hunch.com it was bought by ebay but they do this thing where they ask you a series of questions and the questions start pretty broad and they're things you think would be easy to predict about a person like do you speak a foreign language and after question number 18 it was getting pretty specific have you donated blood have you done this have you done that and they were taking my answers and comparing them to answers given by the people i've simply followed or who followed me on twitter 
and they weren't actually reading their tweets or anything. It was just who, who they were. And there was a really strong correlation, upwards of 90%. And as the person joked to me, you know, people's own self-correlation often isn't that high. So just the people, it turns out the people who I follow on Twitter and who follow me have a pretty share, strong shared outlook on a lot of these questions and by association taste. Doesn't mean there's not exceptions and the exceptions are sometimes the interesting. We all have our own weird little you know quirks that you can't quite pigeonhole. And that's what makes life interesting. Right? Yeah, I mean, because we all want to think of ourselves as being very unique and very unique being a bad way to put it, but unique snowflakes. When reading your book, the more and more I read it, the more I think, no, we're not. We're very influenced by each other. How we like something, as you point out, can have to do with what music's playing in the background at the time, or our experiences in a likable time or preference can be so influenced by everything that's happening on the outside. Yeah, and I mean, even looking at this book cover, I think of something like in New York City, the way so many people read on devices now, so you, you don't have that. It was always a favorite thing to see what people were reading on the subway, and I think that even was sort of a subconscious street marketing thing, not not intentionally, but you know that that's how you picked up interesting cues. Now we don't see that, and thinking of e-readers, I was just in, in Canada talking to the people at Kobo, a big online retailer up there, and they were you know, mentioning some interesting data about Fifty Shades of Grey, for example, and how much that was actually selling in places, let's say Bible Belt states, where you think it might not have a strong reception. So what our advertised tastes are could be quite different to the tastes we sort of keep to ourselves, or we might really be secretly dabbling in all these things. And whether we call them guilty pleasures or something else, but you know, often there is a kind of a disconnect there between the publicly broadcast taste and those secret things. Yeah, it's almost as if we're, we have some sort of accepted cultural thing of what we think is good and what is an acquired taste. Or There's no accounting for taste? Yeah, there's no accounting for taste, exactly. Yeah, and usually when we, I have a Google search on that phrase, and 99% of the time when it comes up, it's someone talking about something someone else is doing as a way of, I don't understand why they're doing that. We kind of think of our tastes as these sort of rational things that have a good reason. And then when we see someone else doing something, we say, well, that, that's kind of weird. They must be sort of a strange person. Or, which relates to something in psychology called you know, sort of the actor-observer effect that we often, we explain our own actions away by these rational things and then attribute other people's actions to something about their personality. There's no accounting for taste is something that we should be directing at ourselves a little more often. Absolutely. (laughs) We did a episode recently with a woman who talked about being in a museum. She was an art historian, and she pointed out that people, when they're in a museum, only look at something for 17 seconds. And I was asking her to hypothesize about why she thought that was, but do you have a hypothesis on that now after doing this research about why we're moving on when it comes to art? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is that figure was generated at large institutions like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, of which I'm a proud member, but I, I go to the Met a lot because there's a lot to see there. And the idea that you could go to that institution once and even have even scratch the surface. So almost this panic sets in where you're just trying to race from painting to painting to try to see what you think you should see. Art has been mentioned as this funny thing where you, you, you decide how much time to give it. Like a song is three minutes, a movie is two hours. Art, you can give it 17 seconds. You can stand in front of it for 15 minutes if you want. What's interesting about that also, though, is that Jeffrey Smith, who's, who did that initial study, has done a follow-up study at the Art Institute of Chicago, and he's found that the figure, that mean viewing time, has kind of stayed the same, but there's been a new behavior added to that mix, which is people taking selfies of themselves in front of the art. So 
they haven't expanded the time. So you're still giving it 17 or 27 seconds, the, the figure varies. But now you're even doing less actual viewing. You're just kind of doing this selfie. And I mean, sel selfies in front of art, I mean, that gets into a whole other taste discussion in terms of what you know might be called social signaling. Are you taking that picture of yourself in front of the art because you are genuinely enthused about being in front of that art? Or are you trying to broadcast this thing over social media of, hey, I'm, I'm a cultured person. I went to this museum and brought myself here because this is something that I, I think is important about taste, especially in a, in a democracy. And this is something that Tocqueville was talking about in the 19th century. As more of us have access to the same things, where do you find distinction? I used to go to record stores, try to find like these Japanese pressings of, of vinyl. And, and you know now I can just find all that on Spotify. So now what becomes source of distinction might be something like going to the the secret show that uh, this band did at a Williamsburg art gallery that no one else knew about. And hey, I took a picture of myself there, you know, something like that. We're, we're trying to find this new form of, of currency. So yeah, so art, I, I, ever since I've, I saw that figure, I now try to spend at least you know, a minute, if, <laughs> even if I don't you know, particularly find the painting that interesting, because there might be something there that I haven't seen. Um, I'll just mention one other thing about looking at paintings that I found really fascinating. A study was done at the Whitney about people wearing headphones and looking at paintings, which I, I'm not going to say that's a bad idea, but it does privilege one form of viewing. Ask those people afterwards questions about that painting and all they can report to you is what the tape told them. When you ask them about something that was not featured in the discussion, it's almost like they weren't looking at it. This kind of cognitive tunneling was happening where they were just looking at what they were told to look at and left the other stuff. So my advice is if you're going to use a guided audio tour, do it twice, you know, do it once with a guided audio tour, then walk back and just look at it on your own, either, either before or after. I don't think that the, it matters which, but one of the other things you talk about with art is that we often have a gut reaction to certain paintings. We like and dislike it almost so fast that we couldn't possibly have actually seen it. Where is that coming from? Psychologists have made the argument that, that gets back to these basic instinctual things about making you know, instantaneous, let's say, food decisions. And I mean, it, 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 we are evolved to make very rapid decisions in the field. Yeah, what's interesting to me about that is that Clement Greenberg had this great quote. He said, all original art looks ugly at first. So I think this gets back to that thing we're talking about with whiskey or other acquired tastes. There can be something where you have a strong reaction to something, but often it's unclear what that reaction actually is. And I think a lot of us in the face of that uncertainty attribute it to disliking something. But there may actually be within that strong reaction the seeds of this liking that just... It's not the same kind of liking as a, as, a, as a more simple reaction to something like a sugar hit or something like, wow, that's great. It's a more complex thing that might take some time to really unpack. You might have to figure out exactly what it is you're re reacting to. Someone may have to show you. Art is a complex thing, and I think a, a lot of our tendency, though, is to make these snap judgments, especially in the absence of information, which is what a lot of contemporary art is. It's, it's, Society hasn't actually decided, in many cases, whether it's good or not. Sometimes it doesn't really have explanatory wall text or a long explanation of you know who painted it and why. We just have to sort of make up our mind on the fly. And often that can be a very perilous tightrope to walk. And you, you, may make, you may make, quote unquote, the wrong decision. And that's just some of the anxiety I think we feel. If you can hear any noise in the background, that is your crowd. <laughs> Tom is about to speak tonight, so this is his crowd starting to come in that we're hearing walking up and down the hallway and talking. So I just want to ask you two more things because you have to get out there. But I have to ask you about this warbler bird story that you told. I found that absolutely fascinating. 
Yeah, this guy, uh, Bruce Byers in University of Massachusetts, was recording uh, the chestnut-sided warbler, this community of them near his office. And so in 1988, he recorded a group of their songs. And he went back in 1995 and found that almost the entire repertoire had changed. It was almost as if there was kind of a billboard chart of warbler songs, and they had kind of gone through several cycles of taste and had kind of emerged with this new warbler style that was out there. But there's two types of songs, and one type of song they sing is very particular function for mating, and this is this is life or death for warbler passing on genes, right? So that stuff didn't change at all because they were they were expending a lot of mental energy to get that imitation just right. His point drawing away from this was gets into something that's been called the neutral drift theory, which when applied to taste, states that a lot of these tastes might change simply because of almost people are trying to copy one another like these birds were and getting it slightly wrong or or just tweaking it in a way maybe they weren't getting it wrong on purpose you know just very subtle almost accidental innovation i mean the warblers weren't really trying to create new songs they were just doing this copying getting it wrong but in that error new forms were born i make the comparison to all kinds of things in music like everything from the first guitar distortion, which was the result of a broken amplifier, to, you know, the uh, stories about the first DJ who scratched a record, or even Cher's auto-tune, you know, things that were meant to do one thing, and someone pressed the wrong button, and they kind of heard this thing, and like, wow, that, that actually sounds pretty interesting. You know, who, who knew? And that's where this sort of you know, innovation comes from, and may then drive taste change, because people are exposed to something that turns out they, they like without even having been able to predict that. So there's just so much in this book. I really suggest that you go get it. It's called You May Also Like by Tom Vanderbilt. So for this conversation, though, what do you hope people notice or take away when it comes to their likes or dislikes? I fear that, as I did with traffic, some people told me with traffic that they never wanted to get into a car again. But I I was just trying to sort of, rather than answer questions, maybe just give you an interesting new set of questions to take around with you and and interact with the world, because I always think that's a more coming from a point of curiosity and just kind of taking things we might take for granted and unpacking them and presenting them in a new light and hoping that you do the same, not to paralyze you, but to actually create a richer life experience. I don't think you're going to have less pleasure in life coming away from this, just new and varied forms of understanding. That's my hope, at least. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. And this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.